Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Beloved brethren, let us hear God's word. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word. Well, brethren, for I think about five messages, we have looked at the doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine that uh, we believe is clearly set forth abundantly in Scripture. We don't have to go searching with a microscope to find this doctrine. It is, it is posted, it blares from passage after passage. And I do pray that uh, you have found some encouragement in this overview of it. Now, <clears throat> it would be easy since... Uh, uh, we began some months ago uh, with what I've been calling something of a, an extended survey of the doctrine of grace to have ended it last week looking at the wonderful and encouraging uh, doctrine of preservation brought to its zenith. However, we would think after hearing those five messages or those five studies, so to speak, that uh, there would never be any argument about whether those that are uh, born of God's Spirit would persevere to the end. Why is there any controversy when something that seems to be so largely uh, established in the Scriptures uh, should be a, a matter of controversy? And it is because there are some very sobering passages that at first glance seem to challenge that idea. As clear as the other passages seem to be about the perseverance and the preservation of the Lord's dear children, there are other passages that seem to make very clear that Christians can lose their salvation. So it is vital for us to spend a few weeks at the end of the Doctrine of Preservation looking at the doctrine of apostasy and looking at a few of the verses or passages that are often raised as objections to the doctrine of perseverance and pres excuse me preservation now there are quite a few that I've known in my lifetime that have come to this passage in chapter 6 and begun to tremble and that's one of the reasons it's here there are passages that should cause us to tremble. And I think a proper understanding of this passage will still leave us trembling. I think that that is a proper response to this passage. But I don't believe that the Lord's children should live in abject fear and that this verse or passage should displace the glorious promises of God that they will persevere. There are warnings in the Scripture and they are there for good reason. 
And we need to read them carefully, think them through, and apply them to our lives according to the Word of God. Let me say a couple of things in further introduction, and then we'll jump into this in a little more detail. The way we use terms has a lot to do with the way we understand what the Scripture says and what we say to one another. Can a Christian lose his salvation? Well, it depends on how we define Christian. If a Christian is someone who makes a profession of faith and repentance, professing to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, following Him in baptism, and joining himself to a local body of believers to uh, participate in worship and to partake of the Lord's Supper, you and I would have no other recourse than to call such a one what? A Christian. All right? I mean, we wouldn't call him a Buddhist. We wouldn't call him a Hindu. They're professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and none of us here that I know of, and I'm quite sure no vessel of dust, has an infallible heart reader. I don't think any of us, any of us have an infallible ability to know who is God's elect and who is not. Therefore, there is always the per- perspective in Scripture that we might call objective. When I look at you and you look at me, the only things we have to go on are those outward things. There are things that God calls us to, and at least to our understanding of things, those who seem to be in conformity to them would be Christians. We would call them Christians. We don't walk around with each other looking at uh, one another in the eye and saying, Hi, maybe brother. Hello, maybe sister. We don't do that. Why do we accept them as brothers and sisters? Well, because they have some credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Scriptures demand. They have uh, been baptized, and they have joined themselves to a local assembly. What else are we going to call them? In that sense, a Christian could lose his salvation. Someone who lives a professed Christian life. And when I say lose salvation, I mean they can fall away from the faith. Alright? It isn't that they had everlasting life. You can't have temporary eternal life. But in the sense of someone falling away from the faith, yes, that's all through the Scripture. And from our perspective, this is someone we've known as a, quote, Christian. The the primary question is, and of course, brethren, this is why we come up with terminology that you don't find in the Scriptures. It's valid, but, but we come up with terms like, well, he was a true Christian. Right? As opposed to a, a false Christian. Uh, you know, we, we, we have to come up with terms like that to try, to try to describe what we see. And sometimes it's that very kind of terminology that makes this even more difficult and a little foggier. Professing believers can fall away 
the local body of Christ. However, the elect of God can never be lost, as we've spent five weeks affirming from God's Word. So, the reason I take the time to introduce it that way is because very often we get to a passage like this, we read it, we go to perhaps a more mature Christian, and what we hear is something like, oh, well, don't worry about that passage, that's for people who never had had anything to begin with. Actually, they had quite a lot to begin with. They did not have eternal life, but they had a great deal, as the passage reveals. And that's why it is a passage that is a good, solemn warning for those of us who meet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who would say, well, because of God's grace, these warning passages should never be you know, taken too seriously. We don't want to get too upset about them. Well, you know, when you tell people those kind of things, what that generally registers in the human mind as is, when I read it, I don't need to be too concerned about it. And, brethren, if it's the Word of God, we want to know what it says, we want to know what it means, and we want to examine our lives by it. So, in light of saying those things, now, I hope everyone's with me. If if I've confused anyone at this point, I'm I'm failing at the outset. But it it is absolutely true that some who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ fall away from the faith. And that's real. And it is eternal destruction. But the Lord's elect will never be lost. You and I do not have infallible elect detectors. So we must always come to the Scriptures knowing that God knows who His children are and hopefully we will make our own calling and election sure so that we will know whether we are truly children of God or not. But we must be very careful uh, that we do not take these kinds of passages lightly. So, having said that, we want to consider apostasy and salvation. Apostasy and its meaning. And apostasy and Hebrews 6. Now let's begin with apostasy and salvation. As I said, we have looked for several weeks now at the glorious doctrine of the preservation and the perseverance of God's dear children. And I trust that you have found that edifying, encouraging, and I trust that you realize that it has been uh, in harmony with the Word of God. We said that there were four pillars upon which the doctrine of preservation and perseverance rests. And that is the immutability, the unchangeable nature of God's nature, His purpose, and His promises. He does not change. His purpose does not change. And therefore, if we know what His purpose is, we have some idea of 
of what we may expect in accordance with that. And his promises do not change. If his purpose is to save a people for his son, then he will, in fact, save a people for his son. His purpose will never change. And his promises will not change. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is true today as the moment it came from the lips of the Savior. His promises do not change. Therefore, if we repent of our sins, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. The mediation and intercession of Jesus Christ is the second pillar. His glorious work as our great high priest, as our prophet, as our king, secures for us a glorious salvation. He has paid the penalty for our sins. All of our sins are washed away. And he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. There is nothing that stands between us and our God. That is why Paul can declare. That's why he can, so to speak, take the, the gauntlet and throw it down before the whole universe and say, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? If God has declared me just because all my sins are washed away, how can I ever be anything but just in the courts of heaven? third pillar is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God in His mercy intended before the foundation of the world to give us a gift that would bring us to the end of our journey. And it wasn't brilliant minds, high IQ. It wasn't just because He was going to make us tough and rough people. It was because He was going to take up residence within us by the power of His Holy Spirit. And the abiding Spirit guides us. He works in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. That begins by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We will continue to believe because the one who loves and exalts the Savior, the Spirit, will move in our hearts to love and exalt the Savior. And the fourth pillar was the nature of salvation itself. The elect of God have been predestined unto the adoption of children and chosen unto everlasting life in Christ. God had a purpose. He worked out His purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. He predestined His children to this glorious Salvation chose them to take part in the, in the salvation that Christ has accomplished. The Lord Jesus perfectly, successfully triumphed in the salvation of His people by propitiating the Father with His own blood. He turned away the Father's wrath by paying for all of the sins of all of His people. He reconciled His elect by His blood. He brought us back into a glorious, harmonious union 
All because His blood washed away all of our crimes, all of our perversions, all of our rebellions against God. And the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed us. He bought us out of slavery by His blood. All those words over and over and over. Propitiation, reconciliation, redemption by His blood. He has taken away that which stood between us and God. And then the Holy Spirit regenerates God's children, granting them repentance and faith, turning their eyes from their sins to the glories of the Savior, believing Him for their salvation. Alive in the Spirit, the elect believe unto justification declared, accepted, and treated as righteous by God the Father. And then they are sanctified by the Spirit until the day they are glorified. God has done these things to save His people from their sins. It is a full, free, and perfect salvation. It is a deliverance of those who are lost. So we want to consider at least these five things when we come to this passage. God's elect are born again. They are regenerated, made alive by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, God's elect are converted. They've been turned from idols to believe in the living God. They repent and they believe because they are alive in the Spirit. Thirdly, the elect are justified. The judge of heaven and earth declares them righteous. We are just before God because we stand by faith clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A perfect salvation, a perfect righteousness is ours in the Lord Jesus. Fourthly, God's elect are sanctified. The work of the Holy Spirit that is begun in regeneration continues in bringing them into a life of holiness. And fifthly, God's elect are adopted. They are the sons of God, as John tells us. 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. God not only forgives us, brethren, we are not simply pardoned criminals. We are children of God. God has, by His mercy, by His eternal love and grace, for those who are utterly unworthy, He has brought us into His family, making us joint heirs, not sub-heirs, but joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. All that is Christ's is ours. Brethren, I can walk outside that building tonight and say, that is my sky. And that's true. Now, just like Abraham, I may not be able to enjoy my ownership of it yet. But that's mine. Because it's Christ's. And I'm a joint heir with Him. That's my sun, my moon, my stars. Those are my seas. Not because I created them. Not because I bought them. 
but because Christ bought me. And in Christ we are joint heirs. What is His is ours. The Lord didn't say, I'll give a little bit to you and a little bit to you and a little bit to you. It's all ours in Christ. Because we are His sons, God's sons. Now, if that's true, we want to bear those things in mind as we come to a passage like this. Because if there is a passage that is raised in objection to the doctrine of preservation and perseverance, it is this one. It is this one. Over and over uh, throughout the years, when I've ever spoken with anyone about the doctrine of God's sovereign grace, they always want to go to Hebrews 6 when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. So let us take some time to do this. Now, first of all, we want to consider then apostasy and its meaning. We always want to view apostasy in the light of what salvation really is. Be sure you know what salvation is before you take on the issue of apostasy from it. Now, apostasy and its meaning. We have a definition. The word apostasy itself comes from the Greek word apostasia, which means simply to fall away. To fall away. Webster defines it this way. An abandonment of what one has professed. Hear that? An abandonment of what one has professed. A total desertion or departure from one's faith or religion. The idea is found translated in the scripture in these words. Forsaking, falling away, Departing from the faith and departing from the living God. Now there's a parable that the Lord Jesus Christ gave that will help us understand the issue of apostasy and Hebrews chapter 6. Turn to Luke 8. Luke chapter 8. Jesus Christ gave a parable regarding four soils. For time's sake tonight, I will not read that parable. I will share with you His explanation of it. Beginning in verse 11, Luke 8. Now the parable is this, says our Lord. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. 13. They on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Now, look at those words very carefully. Receive the word with joy. They're very happy about what they're hearing. They understand what they're hearing. They say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I like that. Yeah, I, I realize, I hear what you're saying. Can't be good enough to, to earn heaven. So, yeah, sure. So, substitute took my place. 
Yeah, I, that sounds great. But it goes on to say, and these have no root. And these have no root, while which for a while believe. Which for a while believe. And in time of temptation fall away. Now, <clears throat> this is very sobering. Because it says, which for a while believe. Doesn't the scripture say, if you believe you'll be saved? Well, yes it does. But you have to take out your concordance and look up all the passages that talk about believing and look up all the passages that talk about faith. You have to do a good bit of studying and praying and you will come to the conclusion that men have the capacity to believe. We believe things every day. We can believe certain things without being saving faith. Saving faith is something that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. It flows forth from the regenerating work of God and what we will believe is the gospel truth. Saving faith, if I can say it this way, is kind of like a category of faith. All men have ability to believe certain things. They will never savingly believe justification by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. They may believe all kinds of gospel truths, so to speak. They may hold them in their minds for a while. They may toy with them. They may walk in and out of a church building for decades. But you'll notice what it says about those who fall away is that there's no root in them. There's no root. In other words, they are exercising something in the flesh, not by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's possible. You're reading it. They believe for a while. And then what happens? In time of temptation, fall away. The reason they fall away, no root. In other words, they have never been born of God's Spirit and the belief that is in them is about certain religious truths, but it is not a saving grasp of the glorious imputation of Christ's righteousness by faith. Now that brings us ultimately to apostasy. And Hebrews 6. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time. Now, <clears throat> one of the greatest problems as we wrestle through certain doctrines is taking a controversial passage, just reading a couple of verses that uh, uh, comprise that particular portion of Scripture and making our argument there. You need to know the context in which it sits. 
And you need to understand what's being said before it and after it in order to get a handle on it. Now, we can only do that briefly tonight. We, we don't have time to do an exhaustive study of this very complex passage. But we can make good work of it, I think, God being our helper, if we just take a few principles and apply them carefully. Number one, let's see some of the things said before we build up to that climax of Hebrews 6. Turn to chapter 2. Hebrews 2. We heard this this evening. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. The more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Why in the world is a verse like that in the Scriptures? Because not everybody that professes to believe the truth believes the truth. And that's vital. This is what I'm talking about. The Scripture is written from the perspective of God sometimes and from the perspective of men. Paul didn't know whether every man was the elect of God or not. He didn't. There may have been times when he understood, as he said to the Thessalonians, that he knew their election of God. But when the apostles, as men, spoke to other men, we do not know that they ever had an infallible understanding. And certainly when they wrote to places they'd never been, they could not assume that everyone sitting there was a regenerate individual. What did we know about them? They professed faith in Christ and were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That identifies someone as a, quote, Christian. And in their participation in the local church, taking of the Lord's table. So, he has every right to say, warning, don't let what you're hearing slip. It may prove to be fatal to you. God doesn't play any games. This is His assembly. It's not mine. It's not Brother Stevens. It's not any elders. It's certainly not any board of deacons. It is Christ's because He bought it. It's His. And therefore, we need to say to those who come here, the head of the church is warning you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to fill your soul with glory and exaltation. Our worship should be vibrant. It should be alive. It should be robust. It should be led by the Spirit. Our hearts, our minds, our whole body ought to be engaged. We ought to hear. We ought to pray. We ought to sing. We ought to take part of the Lord's Supper. But He also warns us. Not everyone that gathers together is truly His. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Can someone neglect that doctrine? Yes! People can sit in churches for years and neglect the truth of God. 
Neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. All right. Now here's what, that's where we begin. Hebrews is an epistle of warnings. There is great encouragement. There is great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is great exposition of the Lord as our great high priest. It's among the most rich and wonderful reading and uh, food for the soul in all of Scripture. However, it is laden with warnings. Why? Well, the epistle to the Hebrews. The context is that these Hebrews, who had professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, came under tremendous pressure, tremendous trial, tribulation, persecution, when they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Read the book of Acts. Who was Paul's greatest enemy throughout the book of Acts? His own kinsmen. They beat him. They left him for dead. They, they did everything they could to annihilate him. They took vows. We're not going to eat until we've killed this guy. It was dangerous to be a, a Christian, period. But it was especially dangerous among the Jews to be one who professed that Jesus Christ was Messiah. And so under the great pressures and persecutions, many of them went back. What did the Lord Jesus say in His parable? There were those who believed for a while but when tribulation, when temptation, when testing came, they fell away. So that's the very, that's what undergirds this entire epistle. Those that might fall away from the truth. That doesn't mean it doesn't have application to Gentiles, but you must understand its context to know why what's being said is said. So, as a Hebrew who understands that the Old Testament teaches that you can actually be among God's covenant people and fall away, the writer of Hebrews goes back into those scriptures and brings up warnings. Look at Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my... Now, notice, before I go on, what does it say? They have not known my ways. But I wait just a minute. Who were these people? They were the people God led out of Egypt. And He gave them the revelation of the Ten Commandments and of all of His glorious law. How is it that they have not known His ways? He doesn't mean they never heard of God's law. It means they didn't walk in it. 
though I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Well, what was the problem with them? Well, verse 12 tells us, Take heed, brethren, after making a reference to the Old Testament passage, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What was their problem? An evil heart of unbelief. What is he warning those who are toying with going back with? An evil heart of unbelief. If you go back, it's because you have an evil heart of unbelief. Go back to what? Go back to the old covenant. Go back away from Christ's righteousness back to slaying animals and pouring out their blood and burning their bodies and looking at a human priesthood. That's exactly why all of this is unfolded in the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus is the great high priest. Don't go back. They were pictures. Christ is the fulfillment. Don't go back to those sacrifices. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. If you leave the fulfillment, if you leave Christ and His righteousness, you have an evil heart of unbelief. Because you are going back to that which is now empty. It cannot, it will not save. It goes on to say, for we were made partakers of Christ. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. In other words, he's saying, here's the difference. <laughs> we are truly one with Christ if we finish the race with Christ. Those did not. Why? An evil heart of unbelief. Contrast between those and who those between those who fell away and those who are one with Christ. All right then. <clears throat> now, verse fifteen. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. He's pleading, brethren. He repeats it. Don't harden your hearts. Don't hear the truth and go away from it. Don't harden your hearts. This is what the, the fathers did. What happened to them? It says, For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. What was the problem? No root. They did not savingly believe their God. Verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now he's going to build this argument all the way through the epistle. Why will you not finish the course? An evil heart of unbelief. If you do not, if you leave Christ, it only shows you had no faith. 
Now, you understand the context. If you leave the righteousness of Christ for some something else, this is not someone falling into sin as such. Sometimes there are believers who fall into awful sin and they can be reclaimed. This is why John says, you could pray for a brother who isn't sinning a sin unto death. But those who have utterly rejected Christ after saying, yes, I repent of my sins, yes, I believe on Him, yes, I've been baptized now, I'm His follower, pressure is coming upon me, uh, no, I won't have Christ, I will go back to the beggarly elements, as Paul calls them. This is an outward, willing, knowing rejection of the righteousness of Christ for something else. It is falling away. Look at chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Hear it. But the word preached did not profit them. They heard the word of God, but it did not profit them. Why? Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Brethren, that's something we need to hear and it's something we ought to tremble about. Do you hear the Word of God mixed with faith or do you just take in Bible facts? Oh, I go to church, I hear the Word of God, I say amen, I like some of the songs, I go home and I live like the world. You are not profited except you hear the Word Mixed with faith. You see, those who will go on with Christ are believing. They haven't simply believed, past tense. They believe. And they go on believing. Because the Spirit abides in them. But we need to be warned because I can't see the Spirit in you. You can't see the Spirit in me except we believe the Word of God, mix our hearing with faith, and our lives go on with the Lord. For we which have believed, do you see the contrast he keeps making over and over? Them, unbelief. That's why they fell away. Us, we go on. Why? We believe. We which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Alright, verse 6. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in. Why? Look at the words. Because of unbelief. Verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same 
example of unbelief. The Bible and its preachers and teachers are repetitive. Why? Because we need to hear it over and over. Unbelief. Unbelief. What's the issue? Evil heart of unbelief. Verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, God knows who his children are. You and I ultimately don't. So we must be warned. If you sit and you hear the word of God over and over and over, not mixing it with faith, friend, it is not profiting you. It is likely that you will become more and more hardened and prove to be like them. Those who did not enter into the rest of God because of unbelief. He goes on in chapter 5 to tell us about our great high priest and then in chapter 6 he then says, Therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, I've set that all before you, let us go on unto perfection. It means let's go on to maturity. Let's don't stop. Let's not stop here. Let us go on. Why? Because if we don't go on, it's likely to be the evidence that we have an evil heart of unbelief. Let's go on. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance. Right? He's time and time again. I've I've met believers over the years who are struggling. They've perhaps fallen into a particular sin, a besetting sin. They say, "I'm the person of Hebrews six. I've done this sin. I've done that sin. I've fallen away from Christ." I said, "Have you utterly rejected His righteousness?" I've never once had one say, "Yes." They said, no, no, no. I want to be right with God. I want to be free from this. I want to walk with God. I want to know God. I can encourage them. Who's being spoken of here? Those among the Jewish people who said, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We've done the open confession of faith. Baptism is the public sign of our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've joined ourselves to the local assembly. We take the Lord's Supper. We've said we're His people. They believe for a while. Luke 8. And then in time of tribulation, they fall away. They go away from Christ. Not just in a sin. They reject Christ to go back to another way of being right with God. 
while in its day it was fine because it pictured the coming Christ. But when Christ came and filled it up, the old covenant, as a covenant, was finished in God's work. The law of God still has an important place in our lives. But it's not our covenant with God. We are covenanted to God through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And if we say, I won't have that, and go away, and go back to something else, we have no hope. Brethren, we will take up in more detail this passage next week. We will look at these particular phrases and see how they apply. Once enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift. What does that mean? We'll look at that next week, God willing. But at least at this point, as we look at apostasy, first in the light of salvation and the fact that God has purchased and successfully accomplished a perfect salvation for His people in His Son, Jesus Christ, and applies it through the Holy Spirit, then it is true that God's elect cannot fall away. But since you and I don't know who the elect are, then we need to urge one another and we need to provoke one another to love and to good works and to walk in the faith and to sharpen one another and to tremble when there are warnings in Scripture. You can't make this, you cannot do this sin by mistake. It is a clear, willful, open act. And we have to understand that moving all the way up to it, every example is that of an evil heart of unbelief. Those who were never truly gods. Outwardly, they appeared to one another as the Lord's people. But they finally went away from what God ordained for the righteousness by faith. Let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you trembling? Does this passage concern you? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Are you sinning? Is that why you have a bad conscience? Is that why you're trembling before this passage? Repent! But this is a clear and willful, recognizable sin of going away from the only, only hope that sinners have for righteousness and eternal life. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, You have provided life in Christ. You have shown us by Your mercy, Your goodness, and Your grace a glorious salvation. Oh, Father, thank You for saving Your people. And may we encourage one another day by day, provoke one another to love and to good works that we prove not to be those who believe for a while 
and then leave the righteousness of Christ. O come Holy Spirit, by the power of thy word, by the seed of the word, find good ground and spring up faith and repentance unto everlasting life in those that hear. And may we bow solemnly and examine our lives by thy precious word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.